Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Mallory Mercer, Director of Advocacy and Community Engagement for the STAR Coalition. On this podcast series, we are going to shed light on some of the most stigmatized and misunderstood areas of the mental health industry. Our hope is that through this podcast, we can bring transparency and light to a system that is so heavily scrutinized. We aim to share vital information about a multitude of mental health topics while spreading the message that research equals hope. Good morning, Ms. Roslyn. Thank you for joining me today. So I asked you to come on today in honor of Caregiver Appreciation Month. November is a time that we want to honor family caregivers for their love, dedication, and sacrifice. Can you tell me at what point in your life you became a caregiver? As a business, I did it for 13 years, but my first memory is I was older than my uncle, and um, he was the last of my grandmother, which was um, had nine kids. So as being older, and he he's about a year younger, so you were also a caregiver. He was born normal, but he ended up having some seizures, and he got sick. And so when they took him to the hospital back in the 60s, um, you know, they they didn't sort of like quarantine some and they just put you in the room. So whatever he had, it was a child next to him. He caught what he had and it traveled to his brain and it damaged his brain. So we had to caregive for him. And so as being a little older than him, I was at a young age had to help him, help him walk and help him talk and find directions for different things. Go help, you know, his name was Mark. Help Mark do this and help Mark do that. So that was already instilled in me as a young age. And so I did that all my childhood that I can remember because of, you know, you go over your grandparents' weekends and sometimes holidays and through the weekend. So that was already instilled as a young age, but as you got older, you um, sort of like went into those roles very easily, you know, when you got around that particular person. But then I ended up having a child as I got older, my first son. And tell me about your son. What was he like growing up? We just thought he was active. And um, then when he went to preschool, they first diagnosed him as uh, attention deficit. And then as time went on and his uh, behavior sort of changed, they then diagnosed him as bipolar. You know, they gave me another name to add to. He's just, you know, active and his attention span is not. So they gave me a word which was ADHD. And so then as he got into high school and getting towards his end and had some episodes, they then gave me uh, paranoid schizophrenic. And so as I, you know, couldn't understand, well, why was he this and then this and that? And one doctor ended up saying he was always that. That's just too hard of harsh of a diagnose to put on a child. So that's why they take you through those different things, which to me didn't make sense. But were you given any education early on on how to best navigate your son's diagnosis? During those years of taking care of him, you were just at your wit end because you didn't know what would set him off. And they would tell you different things like, don't give him purple when you give him medicine. Don't give him red. You know, don't give him all these different dyes and the different foods. And, you know, back then they didn't even have a lot of classes so that you could be informed because I think they were learning it as 
they were telling us. And so, and I did go to some classes and they didn't have a whole lot of studies on it. So we're learning. And then once you think you got it down packed, then they tell you, oh no, he's this. And you're like, well, all that information, you know, how did that relate to this? Because now you don't get years in, you know, HDAD. Now he's paranoid, schizophrenic, you know. So you just feel like your world is constantly turned upside down, not just with trying to deal with them, but then the medical field is not giving you enough information that is equipping you to deal with the daily day of your child, you know. So you're just in this maze of, okay, what's, what's the day? You wake up like, okay, what's the day going to hold? You know, whether he wakes up and not want to go to school or he wakes up and don't want to eat or he just wakes up and talk totally crazy. And then when I wanted to limit the medicine and not sure exactly where to go and if who's helping me or hurting me or who's on my side, you know, one nurse said to me, not giving her the medicine is like sitting a child in the back of the room knowing that they can can't see the board and now you know so they didn't give you this guilt trip like if you don't give them all the medicine but you see all the side effects that your kids are having so you're wanting to stop the medicine knowing that he needs the medicine so you're really pulled both ways because when he got on this one particular I think it was Ritalin he slept all day yeah and then he would wake up just in time to take the medicine and then we'd move and when they changed the dosage he would go through that all over again and then when they lessened it he was feeling suicidal you know you were just not knowing where to turn where you're not to have good information and you know you're listening to the doctors and a lot of that stuff in your own brain ain't making sense yeah you're thinking, well, maybe because I'm not in the medical field, you know, maybe I need to do a little more research for myself. So with all the different diagnosis and medications, how did that affect your life, your son's life and your family's life? It was a daily struggle. And with that, your family goes through, you know, your marriage goes through and your kids feel neglected because you're giving more to this child and telling that child, you know, give him a little more grace because of what he's doing. And they don't feel like they should. Because, you know, he still hit me. He's still doing this to me. And you're trying to let him know that, no, this is not right. So you're pulled in so many different directions, but you want, you know, you're trying to do the best you can. And sometimes that still is not enough. Mm -hmm. It sounds like you were kind of born to be a caregiver. You know, you, you were placed in your uncle's life and you cared for him for a long time. And then your son came along. Now, I want to go back a little bit. So you said your uncle, his mental capacity was that of a small child. So can you talk about that difference in caring for someone that maybe is disabled in a different way versus caring for someone with a serious mental illness? Can you talk about the two? Yes. Now, my uncle, he was he was mentally disabled, too. But then as time went on, he got to the point to where because he didn't talk. Okay. So because he didn't talk, we had to just about watch his body language, know what it is that he liked. You know, dentistry with different foods. We had to make sure we cut it up a certain way. We had to watch it and make sure was he choking? Was that too big? You know, did he like this particular food? Um, was he eating it just because you put it in front of him? Mm-hmm. You know, or is it something he liked? So we had to really know his face's expression or his hand movement because he didn't talk. I mean, he said yes, 
No. But he said yes to everything. You hot, Mark? Yes. You want to go outside, Mark? Yes. You know, do you you like this? Yes. So it was a lot of yes. And then, you know, we we got him to do some no's. Like um, he had five brothers. So and he knew his name. We taught him his name. His name was Mark William. And so he would say stuff. We would I would tease him and he'd get a real kick out of it. I said, your name is, mm, and it was his brother. I would say Larry. And he'd be like, no, because he knew his name was not Larry. Yeah. So we would teach him different things from what he already knew. He knew what his name was. And so he would know the difference between yes and no. So we were trying to get him to understand the yes and no. Your name is Ricky. No. You know, so we would do stuff like that. And so we got it on some things he would say no. But we still had a little, you know, because when he was younger, he would, we taught him to go to the bathroom, but the older he got, he would, you know, stop doing those different things, and we had to tend to him in those ways. And, you know, he wasn't able to talk, so he couldn't say, hey, you know, I've been sitting too long, or hey, I am hungry, or I need something to drink. We had to just say, you know, try to look at, when the last time he had something to drink? Do we need water? You know, mm-hmm. let's get him a dessert, you know, if his nose start running. What is is he got a cold? Is it just sinus? Is it the air conditioner? You know, is he too cold? Fill his hands. Is his feet cold? So we did have to you know, watch him very careful. If he walked funny, you know, one day we end up having caregivers and I end up seeing the back of his shoe um, at a church service. And I said, why is his shoes not on his feet? I know you're in a wheelchair, but why is his shoes not on his feet? Because I wasn't there for every shift. So I'm like, why is his shoes not on his foot? Because I was his niece. I was the one from my grandmother because my grandmother had passed. I took on her role because Mark would go out to different areas to to body check him to make sure he didn't have bruises or marks or from somebody that, you know, didn't understand whether he was mentally ill and might hit him or scratch him or do other things because he was also in, um, you know, they do the little area where they can go away to be with others like themselves. Right. And so and you would have some that were combative. And so you just want to watch that. And then with caregivers, too, I wanted to make sure he was being taken care of. So, And I bet that so, makes it yeah. really hard for you to feel like you can take a break and go on those vacations that you so deserve because you're worried and you know that no one cares for your loved one like you do. And so, you know, those experiences I'm sure are hard and they, I bet they create a lot of guilt. I can't even begin to imagine what you go through mentally as a caregiver. And I, I kind of want to focus on that. So do you feel like, I know you said that you didn't feel that you had enough education in the beginning of your son's diagnosis, but do you feel that now you get support from various providers and community members? Well, what I ended up doing was going to school and becoming a a CNA. Because if I'm going to do this, then I wanted to have some knowledge of it. That was not what I wanted to do for a living, no. (laughs) What I wanted to do was do massage therapy, which I ended up doing that too. But I had to do the caregiver because I felt that there was the basic knowledge that I was missing. Is your mom on the phone? I'll call you. I'll come back. I'm not. I'll be right back. Okay. Um, that was my son, Jamar. He had to make an entrance. So speaking of Jamar, can you tell me how he is now and what life is like with an adult child to care for? Yeah, he's 44 now. Mm-hmm. He got him a job and he got it himself. And I didn't know it. He came home and he said, I got a job at the gas station. 
And what he does, he stops to drink the, the chips and all that. The man lets him give him some money for that. And just having a job turned him in such a direction that I don't think any class or teaching could do. Just him making money and being as close as normal as he could be. To get up every morning and get himself to dress and lay his clothes out, wash his clothes and fix his food. You know, he'd go to the grocery store. It put all this in place. When before his job, he was just get up, sit around, play games, look at TV, sit on the porch. But having that job, you know, I didn't even know he did it. So he went down there, got the job. So he gets up around 7 and goes down there, stays about 12, come home. And doing that, you still see signs because he's easily distracted. But he uh, really likes to cook his own food. He would come in. He likes hamburger and chicken and stuff like that. He really ate into a whole lot of vegetables, but he will cook and then walk outside to talk. Mm-hmm. And I said, Jamar, do you have something on the stove? Yeah, yeah, I'm cooking. And he'll come back in, finish, turn it over or something like that. So he would do that, but, you know, more or less try not to leave him too long, you know, by himself. Right. If it's fighting, you know, the stove and stuff like that. Even in the bathroom, he will start cleaning or washing up and leave the water on and walk away because he's easily distracted mm-hmm. and has to go outside and talk. And then he'll come back and you'll say, Jamar, the sink is on. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know I did that. But he's been doing that a good four or five years. Well, it sounds like Jamar is doing wonderful, and I'm so glad to hear that. Has there been a time in recent years that maybe Jamar wasn't doing so wonderful that maybe caused his treatment to derail at all? And how did you handle that? He had an incident where I had got this med drop to come in to give them meds, and they changed the hours. So when they changed the hours, they, he told me, and I didn't put two and two together because everything was going so smooth. He got the job, he's feeding himself, he's washing his clothes and doing all this. And so he said, Mom, the mad people that was coming at 7.30, they're coming at 4, 4.30. So then I said, oh, okay, because I know the medicine makes them go to sleep. And so I said, well, just, you know, maybe they have to change their schedule sometime. So since they didn't tell me, I just figured it was a sometime thing. So I said, well, sometimes they might have to change it depending on their route. So if they do that, just take it, go to sleep, wake up, and then you can finish what you're doing. So it wasn't a sometimes. They changed it where all his days. And mm-hmm. um, even though they were calling me and said, hey, I gave Jamar's meds because I asked him to do that because a lot of times when I would come home from work, I'd say, Jamar, did you take your mat? And we didn't get a straight answer. It was everything but the man in the moon. So they changed the time. And then when the doctor called to talk to him at his appointment, he said, uh, Ms. Cole, have you noticed some things with Jamar? And I said, no, because we're hitting miss each other sometimes. And so um, I said, when I get home, he's already asleep. And then when I get up, I can hear him getting ready. And then, you know, he's gone. And then when he gets back, you know, I'm not quite out. I see he getting his food together, going in his room, and then I'm out the door. So he said, I don't think he's taking his medicine. So then when I went in his room, he had pills that he had spit all over his room, all over the place, just to mm. spit it back out. So when they would come and he'd take it, and they were coming so early, because what he said was, Ma, when I come in about 2, I take a little nap, I get up, and when I get up, they're here to give me medicine to go back to sleep. And so then I sleep, and then it's late before I even got anything in my stomach or anything. So that's why I told them just it might be one or two days, you know, or just because, you know, their schedule is off. But 
they changed the time. So when doctor said that to me, I went back in my phone and looked at the different times and they were all four o'clock, mm-hmm. all four twenty. You know, they wasn't like seven thirty, then maybe a four twenty, seven thirty, seven thirty, you know, like that. So then I made a point to be around him and I could see that he was off meds. Mm-hmm. And then that went downhill because once he got off mad because of what they, you know, changed the time, I called them. I'm like, hey, they said, well, we had to change it. I said, but you didn't let me know. So now you put me in a position to where I got to figure out how to get him back on meds because the pills are in his room on the floor. You know, his mind is not, I got to hide the pills. His mind is, I got to take it in front of them and I can just put it in my room. So I said, Jamar, you're not taking it. He said, Monty, come too early. I can't do anything that I want to do. I can't wash, I can't clean my room, I can't clean up, I can't do nothing. So now I understand his point, but then I'm like, how we get here? So that's where we're just coming off of. That's where we at now. So he lost his job because the man called me and said, listen, tomorrow's too far off medicine. He can't come up here in this state. Yeah. Can't come over here like that. He's screaming. He's hollering. He's performing. He's off medicine. So to try to keep him from a job that he had been to for five years was hard, too. Yeah, that's really, that's so tough. And and you're kind of left on your own to navigate it. You know, you're the one that's seeing that at home. You're the one that's trying to get him back on track. And I am thankful for the for the man that gave him his job and that he had, you know, a place in his heart to know that Jamar is so much more than his illness. And I hope that one day when he's able to get stabilized again, he will offer him his job back. And I can just see how much that would help him in his journey. But you are kind of, the family members are kind of left on their own when it comes to situations like this where their loved one is derailed a little bit. And it's your job to not only go to work every day and, you know, be a mother to your other children, but you've also got to get him back on track. And I can imagine that that would be really stressful and tough. So tell me, how do you unwind? When things like this are going on, what do you do for yourself? I am a movie person and I like to walk and I'm a religious person. So I do go to church and so I do have God in my center. So that's one thing. Also, a lot of times my daughter Danielle and my daughter Aaliyah, when they text me and I don't answer the phone, they'll say, you must be at the movie because you're not answering your phone. <laughs> and so I will go and just look at the time of like, I look up a movie and like, because when you go in the movie, your mind sort of shuts down of everything that is around you. So... I can take a total break when I'm watching that because I'm watching a movie. But then when you come out, you're like, oh, right, okay, back to reality, you know. But you do get that time to just not think of anything but what's going on. And just your popcorn and if you got enough butter in it before you get to the bottom. So that's, you know, something that's very good. And then when I walk, you know, it's my time to just release the stress and let it go. And just, you know, I sort of like try to claim healing in my body from my mental state to my physical state and that's really what I do when I do my walking and then you know I um, love the Lord so I go to church and I brought him up in the church and so um, he doesn't like it to go no more but when he was a kid yes he did but on him on the job he's not all the way back but the man do let him come and empty the garbage Mm -hmm. so he is very kind that way so because 
even though there was sickness, he stayed up there and I would come up there with him and just say, okay, I'll bring him back home. He's acting too far up. So he is letting him ease back into certain things like that's where he's, you know, leaving now. He said he'll be back. He'll go up there and he'll let him empty the garbage outside at the gas station because it's a gas station with full food and all that. So he'll let him empty the garbage and maybe sweep up. And so he's hoping to get back. So I let him know that a lot of times when he gets off his meds, it's not because Jamar just choose to not get off his meds. He gets off because something happened to move him in that direction. And he, you know, tries to handle it his own way. And that's why we end up in this, you know. So he's he's making that effort to, you know, stay on because he didn't have to say nothing to me. For him to say, hey, mom, they changed the time and they're coming early to me was a sign that he is trying to figure out how do I stay this way. Yeah. Yeah, he's yeah. not he's not trying to be deceptive at all. And I think that just shows how much of a bond you guys have, too, and how much trust he has in you that, you know, he's willing to, to tell you the truth. that It's not working for him. I wish that there would have been better communication so you wouldn't be in this spot to begin with. But I know that you have a great support system, and I hope that you guys can get back to a good spot very soon. So. Do you meet a lot of other family members or other family caregivers who are also dealing with similar diagnosis? Do you ever meet people that are in the same situation? Um, I did meet quite a bit due to the fact that my uncle would go to a center and I would take him to where they would have group time and you would see other caregivers mm. that was. And so I would meet them and my aunt, auntie that um, she had custody of my uncle. And she would always send us to different classes that would teach us and have us in the other with other caregivers. And, you know, I would tell them, you know, even though he's my care, uh, caregiver, he's my uncle too. And one lady was saying, this is my son, and this lady over on the other side was saying, this is my brother. And so we would meet them. And then to this day now, I am in a group with people that support each other. It's on Facebook. And um, they all are there. Some of them are their husband, their brother, their child, you know, and we are able to, and I love that group. My daughter ended up finding that group for me. And sometimes we are able to laugh at each other and support each other and just tell them, hold on, we understand. I've been there with you. And, you know, sometimes they'll do crazy things and we're able to say, you know, this I know it's not funny to you right now, but when you look back on it, it will be or, you know, something like that. Or we'll say, you know, we'll keep you in our prayers and know that you're able to come on this Facebook site and vent if you need to. We understand. So I like that. It's a, I think it's us. They all have a schizophrenic on that site that I am on with them. And it's a lot of women. These are women all over the world that I am tied to. Wow. That's amazing to have that. And I'm curious, like having that support, do you see a difference in your own mental health having that group? I do because you don't feel like when I'm telling my kids, you don't want them to judge him and then treat him different. Mm -hmm. You know, like you did this to mama or you said this inappropriate to mama, you know, that you get. But when you're with this group, you can say he said this to me. And they'll say, well, yeah, I know, because mine said this to me. And mm -hmm. you don't feel like you have to sugarcoat it with them because they're in the same boat that you're rolling. Yeah. So, 
and it's different, but you might say it to your sister or you might say it to your best friend and they like, no, don't let him say that. You need to put him out. If he don't talk to you, like, you don't get that because they understand where you at. They understand what we're dealing with, you know, but you'll tell somebody that's your friend and they might not. And even some of them that say, oh, yeah, right, that is your son, they still think, why are you taking that from him? Yeah. You need to put him in somewhere, you know. So I like this one because I have now stopped telling as much to them because then when you're in need to, for them to help, they don't want to be bothered. They're like, oh, you're going out of town. No, I don't want, I don't want that. I don't want to deal with that. So, or you need they help to come over for some reason. No, I don't want to meet you at your house. And you come this way because you've now told them things that they can't handle. Or they'll say that when, if I was in that situation, that's not how I would handle it. Yeah. That's a heavy, that's a heavy burden to bear. And I just think of, you know, before Facebook, you know, with your uncle, how many times you and your family members felt that they didn't really have anywhere to turn. That's hard. And there's probably still a lot of people out there that, They might not have access to Facebook or they may feel shame. I'm sure that's something that you've experienced before. You feel shame just to vent about your loved one because you do love them and you wouldn't have it any other way. But you do need that space to to just vent and tell everyone, you know, what's going on in your life without the fear of judgment. So I'm thankful that you have a group like that. And I hope that anyone listening, if they're in need of a support group, they can email me at malloryatthestar.org. You know, we can help point you in the right direction. We also work with the National Federation of Families, and they're a wonderful organization that I will link in our show notes. But thank you so much for joining us today, Ms. Rosalind. We so appreciate your time and your passion and your dedication to not only Jamar, but to all the other caregivers out there. I just appreciate you being a sounding board for them. And I hope that if anyone has any questions for Ms. Rosalind, they will reach out to me at malloryatthestar.org. We'll also link some resources in the show notes today so that you can visit those as well. Thank you. Yes, thank you for taking your time and all that you do. So, yes.